Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 10. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. When it comes to the mission of the church and specifically evangelism, the gospel going out to people, I have figured it out. I have solved it, and I know exactly what you need to do. Level one evangelism. Here's, what I, here's the, the term that I come up with for the main thing you need to do in level one evangelism if you're a Christian. Um, it's this thing that I call friendship. Be friends with people who don't go to church or believe in Jesus. Be friends with them. Full stop. Be friends with people who don't go to church. That means you spend time with them. You invite them into your life. You are in, hopefully eventually invited into theirs. It becomes normal to spend time together. Why do I think that's one of the most important roles of Christians in this world? It's because the vast majority of people in America who reject Christianity are rejecting something they have experienced. They have experienced the church and they've experienced Christians and then decided they wanted to reject Christianity. 
Your goal is simple. Show people that at least not all Christians are, are jerks. It's a pretty low bar, but I'm saying that's, that's it. Just do that. A, a lot of the intention of that is breaking down the assumptions that people have, the implicit bias that gets in the way of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, lest we're on a high horse here, all of us have implicit bias. Implicit bias is defined this way. It's the subconscious preference for members of your own group. So whatever group you are defined as, you actually have a preference for that grouping. It includes assumptions about what we think of as normal or right, how things are obviously done, and why would anyone do it a different way? A great example of this, and I've used this before, is the difference in how we approach time here in America and how you might approach time in East Africa. So we approach time with specific start and end times. 10 o'clock is when this thing starts. If you're going over to somebody's house, you know that it's at seven. If you're going on a date, you're meeting at eight. You know exactly when it's starting and usually you have in your head when it's going to end or when you're going to end it. That's because we are the kind of people in the West who value productivity. So my time is an asset and I'm gonna give you a limited amount of it because I have to be productive throughout my day. In East Africa, as a professor of Swahili told me, time is very different. You may run into a friend of yours that you haven't seen in a while in the marketplace in East Africa. And you might say to him, hey, you should come over to my house for dinner sometime. And he would say, well, of course, I would love to. And the invitation meant at some point in the next month, he would show up with all of his family at a time that he decides, and you would welcome him in, prepare a meal, and he would stay as long as he wants because you are friends. They value relationship over productivity. Which one is right? We all have implicit bias. Our cultural preferences and norms are implicit, but they can easily cause suspicion, distrust, or devaluing of people who are different than us, right? Now, one of the ways to get past our implicit bias is understanding ourselves, but it's also understanding people who are different than us. And that means getting to know them personally. If you are white, you spend time with somebody who is not white. If you are married, you spend time with people who are not married. And you get to understand their challenges, their issues, their different way of approaching things. But I would suggest the gospel calls us to something even further than understanding. It's not just that the gospel calls out our bias and prejudice, it does, but it also tells us there is no place, there's simply no place for superiority. No place for defensiveness or fear. The gospel says that you are never better than anyone else. Why? Because we are sinful, and every one of us is equally sinful. From the most blatant murderer to the one who secretly sins and no one knows, we are equally sinful and apart from God. And yet none of us are inferior because all of us are loved by God in Jesus Christ. The gospel calls us not just to understanding, but to active love, to seeking the welfare of all people, meaning God's good for them in their life. Peter, one of the great apostles, had to learn God's heart for all people. 
Now remember, Peter had been with Jesus from the beginning, and his heart and life had been transformed by those three years of following Jesus, and especially the crucifixion and the resurrection, and the empowerment by the Holy Spirit landing on him at Pentecost. His life had been transformed by the crucified and risen Jesus. But the implications of the gospel hadn't worked into every part of his life. He still held on to ethnic superiority and spiritual exclusivity because he was Jewish. And his understanding of chosenness meant that if you weren't Jewish, Jewish, you weren't chosen, and perhaps the Messiah didn't come for you in quite the same way. But then the Holy Spirit showed him the astounding inclusivity of the gospel. Let's read a little bit of that story again that was just read for us. In Acts chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, we have Peter has this vision, this dream, this trance, this vision. He's starving, he's really hungry. He has this vision of a giant cloth coming down, like a giant tablecloth, and on it are all the animals of the earth, animals and reptiles and birds. And then he hears a voice in verse 13, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You're hungry, go ahead and eat. Now, Peter knows a test when he gets one, and he's had Jesus try to test him before, and he usually knows exactly, now he's figured it out, right? He's got how to deal with these things. I would never do such a thing, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common, do not call unclean. The Old Testament's dietary laws, those kosher laws of things that you're meant to eat and not eat, were part of the way that God was calling Israel to be his unique people. He wanted them to be holy. Holy means set apart, distinct from, distinct from the other nations. And so their distinctions included the the laws, the commandments. It included the way that they interacted with the foreigner and the widow. And it included things like their ritual purity and cleansing, the foods that they ate, the Sabbath that they kept in a world where nobody took Sabbath. Peter, even as a believer in Jesus, as a Christian, was still following that Jewish custom, as was everyone else in that early church. They still went to the temple to worship because that's the place where sacrifices were made. That's the place where God existed. But this vision declares to him, God has made every animal clean. You can eat anything. Jesus is being said here, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. It nullifies the need for ritual purity to set you apart. Jesus and he alone is the grounds for acceptance with God, not your obedience, not your religious performance, not because you've eaten or not eaten certain things. So as a result, Peter, no food and therefore no person is unclean. What matters is Christ. At the same time Peter's having this vision, a guy named Cornelius is having a dream. Cornelius, we didn't read this part, but in verses one and two, we find out Cornelius was a centurion dwelling in the land, uh, the promised land, overseeing a certain number of soldiers. A centurion was a Roman sergeant or lieutenant or captain. They had 80 to 100 uh, soldiers under them. He was part of the occupying force. He was a Gentile. He was also a God-fearer. A God-fearer was probably a technical term for somebody who believed in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but 
was not Jewish and didn't convert to full Judaism. He probably still ate food that wasn't kosher and he had never been circumcised. He hadn't gone full Jewish, but he believed in Yahweh. And he was known in the synagogue as a man who showed up there to listen, to learn. He prayed continually and gave alms to the poor. He's given a dream about a man named Peter. Go and send for him. I've heard your prayer, you've been seeking me. Go and send for this Peter. Peter then goes to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius' house is filled with Gentiles. An average Jew who was trying to be ceremonially clean would not have entered that building. Peter enters the building filled with a bunch of Gentiles and he preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is the message that he preaches. In verse 28 that we didn't read, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He went on in verse 34 to 36 to say, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Not only that, to him, to Jesus Christ, verse 43, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God has shown me I should not call any person common or unclean. God has shown me that he shows no partiality amongst nations, ethnicities. And everyone who believes in Jesus, regardless of your background, receives forgiveness of sins. And then the very next verses, verse 44 to 45, what happens? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. So Jewish believers, along with uh, Peter, who's a Jewish believer in Jesus, had gone with him to Cornelius' house, and they are amazed. They're astounded. What they're seeing is something that, that completely shattered their expectations, their assumptions. It didn't match anything they expected. And what was it? It was that even on the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit came. The inclusion of Gentiles is a very big deal. Now, we don't think about it as a big deal because out of the 200 in this room, I think there's two or three of you who are Jewish. The rest of us are Gentiles. Of course, the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. But it was breaking with nearly 2,000 years of God acting uniquely through the people of Israel. It was a very, very big deal that the gospel, even the gospel of Jesus Christ, even the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. You see, the Old Testament view was that Yahweh, the true God, had chosen the people of Israel. And he said, I'm gonna set you apart from the rest of the nations. I will dwell uniquely with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And he takes up residence in Jerusalem, in the temple. If anyone in the world wanted to meet the God, they had to go to Jerusalem, to the land of Israel, to the temple, the one place where Yahweh dwells. The amazing part about Pentecost was that on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit spreads out into every believer. So there's Peter and James and John and the rest of the Jewish believers saying, not only does God dwell in the temple, now he dwells in us as believers. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. but they had no category for God going to people who were not the chosen. Taking up residence in an 
unclean, uncircumcised Gentile? Who knows what they ate today? How could the Holy Spirit do this? Paul was blown away by this too. It's what much of Galatians is written about. And in Ephesians chapter three, he talks about the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel. He says, this is the mystery. This is the amazing mystery of the gospel that's been revealed to me. Gentiles are fellow heirs. They too are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Isn't that amazing? He had to call it a mystery of the gospel, something that is unfathomable to the Jewish believers. Now they should have understood that this was part of the promise from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, he says, I will bless you and through your offspring, all nations, all ethne, all ethnicities, all people groups of the world will be blessed. And then he speaks through the prophets centuries later that a Messiah is going to come In Isaiah 9, it was those who dwell in darkness will see a great light. In Isaiah 60, it's a rise shine for your light has come and that light will draw the nations. In Joel chapter 2, the promise of the Holy Spirit was that it will fall on all flesh. The good news of Jesus was going to go out, which is what comes in in the story of Luke as Jesus is revealed. The story of Jesus was gonna go out to the nations so that Jesus himself, after his resurrection, tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for some reason, they originally interpreted it as wherever you can find other Jewish believers. But Jesus meant, no, no, everybody, everybody all nations. The gospel is astoundingly inclusive. The gospel is over every culture that has ever existed, and it also works under in in any culture. Now you have to think about some of the differences here, and of course there have been imperialism kind of bound up in Christianity, but the gospel itself that is the root truth that is there is distinct from the other religions of the world that bind culture with their religious beliefs. So in historic Judaism, and even in Islam today, culture, your culture is primary. You actually had to become fully Jewish culturally to believe in Yahweh and have full access to him. To have access to Allah fully, you actually have to understand Arabic. You cannot read a translation of the Quran. And in language is culture. Hinduism and Buddhism spin out a caste system because of the hierarchy of reincarnation and where you come in. So wherever Hinduism and Buddhism reign, there is a caste system built around social hierarchy. The other religions of the world are very narrow in their geographic scope. Even one of the most widespread, Islam, is found from North Africa across to, uh, to the Middle East and over to Asia, but it's all within this narrow band. 90% of Muslims live within that narrow band. 95% of Hindus are in India, which has its own culture. 88% of Buddhists are in East Asia. But here's the breakdown of Christians. 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% in Central and South America. in Africa, 
15% in Asia, 12% in North America. The gospel does not eliminate cultural distinctions or heritage or ethnicity or language. It renews them. Now think for an, an example of our, we have a version of inclusion in the West, okay? Our Western secular inclusion. But um, to contrast our secular Western inclusion, which welcomes everyone and everyone has a viewpoint and everyone is valid, everyone's viewpoint is valid, um, think about somebody who is from Africa. So Africans, the, the general African ethos is that there is a spiritual and sacred realm to the world and to the creation and to the cosmos. There is a sacred and spiritual realm. And on top of that, the African culture in general emphasizes community, heritage, tradition, clan. Your family matters. The community matters. If a young African goes to the university in the West, if they come to one of our colleges, what they will be told by the professor is, we affirm your culture, we want to hear your voice. And then that professor will proceed to dismiss anything spiritual, demand that you find answers that are rational and not sacred, and they will push an individualistic agenda dismissing any cultural heritage giving lip service to we want to hear while forcing you to buy into the secular Western narrative. It's a very thin inclusion. Lamine Sana, an African professor of mission at Yale Divinity School, wrote in answering why Christianity took root in Africa, he said, even in spite of the imperialism of the Dutch, the French, the English, when Africans heard the gospel, they heard about Jesus, and they realized Jesus did not mock Africans' respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior, and so they beat their sacred drums for him. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. The gospel is powerful because it is available to the educated Persian. It is available to the Dalit, the low caste in India. It is even available to the British royalty. No one is closer because of their status or their education. You can follow Christian, Christ and still be Chinese, fully Chinese or fully Nigerian. You can even follow Christ and be an American. The ancient world, the Greco-Roman world into which the gospel landed, was hierarchical. It had caste, it had status levels, and it had constant divisions of who's in and who's out. Whether it was the Jewish division based around ethnicity and the food laws and others, or it was the Roman hierarchy of status of patriarchs versus the lower down and lower down and lower down, the further in based on how high up you were. Luke Ferry, an atheist philosopher, wrote this about Christianity. Christianity introduced the notion that humanity was equal in dignity. That was an unprecedented idea at the time. He goes on to say that democracy was birthed in Christian nations and has always struggled to be birthed in those that didn't buy into that. 
He doesn't believe in God, but he does note that. It's building upon Paul's very clear statement in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And in him, in Christ, you are all sons of Abraham, heirs of the promise. This, this is amazing stuff. What this is not saying is that, that your ethnicity or your social status or your gender don't exist. It's that they are no longer relevant for your standing with God. The gospel is astoundingly inclusive because it is radically equalizing. Regardless of how your culture views you, God says, you can have access to me on equal grounds with everyone else. Then we need to play out the implications of this gospel. Look, we all have implicit bias. We all have biases, okay? You're gonna have biases based on your race, on your socioeconomic status, on your political views, on your religious stance. You will have a bias on this is what's right, this is what's normal. The problem is that we often move into levels of disdain for people who are at the opposite end of whatever it is that we hold dear. So if you are somebody who values kind of a blue collar mentality, you might be the sort of person who disdains the rich. Or politically, you might disdain Republicans. Or because of your religion, you disdain atheists. Or you disdain people that are LGBT or you disdain people who are in the NRA. We all find something, somebody, somewhere, and we have different levels of, oh, this is acceptably different, and that is unacceptably different. Identity theory in much of academia over the past 20 years posits that to, to have an identity requires creating opposites, that we are binary in our thinking. If this is who I am, I have to define myself against that. I'm this, not that. I'm a fan of this, not that. And the problem is that the more that we go into just binary ways of defining ourselves, the more we exclude other people at various levels, from murder to hate to indifference, which are all levels of murder. So as an example, if, if I find my identity in conservative political and social causes, I will tend to disdain liberals. If the core of me is my academic credentials and my career success, then I will tend to look down on people that I think of as lazy or those who I know are uneducated. The gospel equalizes with unparalleled power because it creates an identity that is not based against other people. It is based in the cross of Christ. It says you and I are sinners. Our starting point is we are sinful. No one is more deserving of God's favor than another, nor can you be. Even 10 years along following Jesus, where you now have the Bible memorized, and you've been to church every week, and you're giving generously, you are not less of a sinner than somebody who is on death row. You are still equally broken before God, but we're also saved by grace meaning you and I can add nothing to our salvation. It's not Jesus died on the cross, so if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll be in. It's Jesus died on the cross, the end. Do you believe that he died on the cross for you? 
It is by grace you have been saved so that nobody can think of themselves better than anyone else. The gospel says your identity is in a cross. It's not in your politics, it's not in your goodness, it's not in your brilliance or your beauty, it's in a cross. And it starts with you deserve death, but he gave you life. Now look, as gospel-driven Christians, it is okay to disagree with people. You can disagree with their politics or their lifestyle or their religious beliefs. You can disagree, but without any disdain or superiority. Because when we bleed into that, we are rejecting the gospel, implying that I deserve God's favor and they don't. When the gospel pushes deep enough into us, it pushes us out in love. Many Christians that I've run across have very little interaction with people that are not churched people. And the basic kind of way that we justify that as Christians is I, I don't really have anything with, in common with them. Christianity is most important to me and it's not to them and I don't have anything in common with them. But if pushed a little bit further, if we're really being honest, some of us fear contamination. We know what they do on a Friday night. I don't want to be around that. Or we have a sense of superiority and disdain. I'm right, they're wrong. The question we have to ask is, what did Jesus have in common with the prostitute? Or the tax collectors? Or the Samaritan prostitute woman at the well? What does Jesus have in common with any of us? He actually is superior. If anybody could actually be superior and act superior, it would be Jesus. But he humbles himself out of love for us, not because he has something in common, but because he loves us. The opposite of hate is not stop hating, okay? The opposite of hate is, to, is not not hating. It's love, right? but it's love defined by the gospel. Love is Jesus' death on the cross. First John says, this is love. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God sent his son because you deserve death and he decided to die for you in order to give you salvation and forgiveness. So if we're going to define the love that we're called to, it's a willingness to die to self for the good of another person, for God's good, God's purposes in their life. Now look, I hope the gospel has made you, as, as a believer, the gospel has made you less racist, classist, politically superior. And if that's the case, great. <laughs> that's good. That should be happening. But if you don't love people with whom you disagree, don't actually actively love them, you simply restrain, refrain yourself from hating them. If you don't actively love them, sacrificially, generously, personally, if the gospel hasn't driven you to deeply desire that every single person would come to know Jesus' love for them, then the gospel hasn't gone deep enough into your heart. You haven't thought through what the gospel really claims and its implications for every area of your life.
Some of you are here today not feeling superior. You're actually feeling quite the opposite. The gospel also speaks to us, to you, with this. God loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. Hear that. Many of you know, especially in a place like Northern Virginia, that you don't measure up. You're currently out of work. You've never had kids. Everyone else has kids and has a good job. Or you're not smart enough, pretty enough, athletic enough, and you know it. You're dealing with addiction or gender dysphoria. You have the wrong accent. Your skin is the wrong color. You just feel unworthy. The gospel says Christ died for you. Your peers and your culture, you may even say to yourself, I don't measure up. The gospel says even if you did measure up, it wouldn't be enough, but that's okay because Christ died for you. Cornelius knew enough as a God-fearer to know that he would never be fully in because he was not actually Jewish. But when he heard the gospel and realized Christ died for him, a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile that was not part of the chosen people, that Christ died for him, a soldier of the oppressive army who had probably overseen or hand held done the murder of people who may have been innocent, a Gentile, a murderer, Christ died for him. And because the gospel could be for him, it can be for you and me too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are all broken people. Thank you that the good news of the gospel starts with that. That we don't live on the basis of our ethnicity or our education or our economics our goodness, or anything but the cross of Christ. May we fully grasp the depths of the gospel and its implications in our lives and have the confidence to move out in humility and love to even the people that are most different than us. In Jesus' name, amen.